Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandus. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezra. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 63. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Donovan. And this is Joe. We are bringing the news from February 27th through March 12th. A little bit of news, but a whole lot of comics have come out in the past two weeks. So we're going to cover everything, then we'll have Bat Books for Beginners as usual. No discussion, because really there's no time for discussion with eight books to cover. So let's get right into the news. The very first thing we have is on February 28th, Comic Book Resources posted up the next installment of the Bat Signal with an interview with Judd Winnick. Winnick, who is who has written a number of different stories within the Batman universe, including um, stories involving Jason Todd, is going to be bringing Jason Todd back to the comics in the pages of Batman and Robin starting in May. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Donovan will read for Judd Winnick. So in this story, I understand we're back to Jason Todd. Yes, yes, Jason Todd is back. It's a story we've been talking about for a little while. Jason's been cooling his heels in Arkham Asylum, and they prefer he not cool his heels there anymore. So it's basically about Jason leaving prison and how Batman and Robin will be dealing with that. Well, I should probably say Batman, Batman and Robin, both Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson and Damien are involved. So everyone, I just turned in the first issue a couple of weeks ago. It's just 20 pages, but I could have written 60 and still be comfortable. There was so much material and ground I wanted to cover but I had to just stick around with the story you were going to tell and not meander too much. But it's a fun story. Was it challenging to write the Dick and Damien Batman and Robin dynamic and also have Bruce Wayne Batman along for the ride? Not challenging in the sense that it was heavy lifting, but challenging in the sense that there's a lot of personality here. It's all about making sure how these personalities mesh. You know, how Bruce is to Jason and Dick is to Damien or Damien is to Jason. What does Damien think of Jason Todd? What does he think about him? He thought this thing about it when Grant wrote him, and Damien is sort of a constant, so it's about examining the personality along with the action. That's how you come up with the stories, by putting these characters in situations. The story that we come up with, and letting them do a lot of the work. So I bet it will be fun. There's a scene in the first issue with Bruce and Jason, which I originally wrote, and I wrote it, and wrote it, and it went on for days. It was absurd how long it was. And I thought, okay, let's cut it back. And by the way, the whole scene, everything in there, was awesome. Fun stuff. Things people want Jason to say. Things they would want Bruce to say. But you know what? That didn't serve the story. It was just, it was just sort of fun for me. But we need to cut back to what we needed to move the story forward. So that's a challenge. Making sure these characters I've lined up with don't talk so damn much. Will we be seeing other heroes from Batman Incorporated coming into this arc, or will it just be the four of them? It's mainly those guys. Anything else would be telling, and I'm not going to chum the water. I guess it answers my question if there will be villains involved other than Jason. I'm going to go with a no. <laughs> I'm going to answer this one no. And if there are others, folks will be surprised. So there. Are you going to be coming onto Batman Robin full-time, or are you just doing this three-issue story arc? Just three issues. 
All right, so that's the end of that interview. Needless to say, he does reiterate that he will only be on the book for three issues. Does that mean Peter Tomasi and Patrick Leeson will be back on the book after Judd Winnick's story? Well, we'll have to obviously wait and see. But uh, for now, Jason Todd's coming back after being gone essentially f- since the end of Battle for the Cowl. Since really the miniseries that involved Jason Todd had nothing to do with the current events that's occurring. Yeah, I'm starting to get a little concerned about the Batman and Robin title because now that Grant's gone, this is like the third iteration of a creative team that's been announced since Grant left. And it's, you know, and it's always these short fill-in arcs, and it sounds like the title is losing direction. Yeah, between Paul Cornell and Peter Tomasi, and now we're having Judd Winnick fill in for the arc, are we going to get a definitive direction and creative team on this title? It It's very concerning. Judd Winnick bringing back Jason, all I can say is I hope that he has a direction for him and doesn't make Jason into this cackling madman villain. Because the last time we saw him battle for the cow, that that, that was just ridiculous. Yeah, word. I, I echo those sentiments wholeheartedly. Um, I mean, Judd Winnings has been, unfortunately, one of the better writers to write Jason Todd, but he's been so bipolar with his portrayal. And I'm glad that he's writing Bruce in the story as well, because it shouldn't be told without Bruce and Jason, I think. I'm anticipating the story, but it could go down really badly, so I'm sort of crossing my fingers with this one. Yeah, just adding to what Josh said about um, Batman and Robin, it definitely seems to be an issue with Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason, because they were the ones originally solicited, and then it said um, Paul Cornell should jump in first. So I, I think it's down to them. So I'm not sure if they, like Dustin said, if they're going to come back afterwards or if their run is up now. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll definitely have to wait and see. About another month and a half until we see the solicitations for August, which would be the first month after Judd Winnick's story ends. So until then, we'll wait and see. All right, so the next bit of news we have comes from March 3rd. MTV Geek posted an interview with Adam Beechin about his work on Batman Beyond. So I will read for MTV Geek, and Joe will read for Adam Beechin. Okay, first off, what's going on right now in the future world of Batman Beyond? Our next issue wraps up our first three-parter, in which Batman battles a strangely sympathetic new matter master who's taking hostage, among others, Batman's mother and brother. It's kind of a tragic story in that it's about a guy who's given the tremendous powers he's dreamed of, but very little in the way of understanding how to use that power. The consequences can be pretty awful from a situation like that. The story has guest-starred the Justice League, who's also been after the Matter Master, and Batman's held them at arm's length from the hostage standoff to make sure his family doesn't become collateral damage in an all-out battle. There was previously a Batman Beyond comic that came out simultaneously with the cartoon, but this is in continuity. In your mind, what's the difference? Are there things that can be done now that couldn't be done back then? Yes, primarily because DC editorial say so. The DC editors are now more open to the idea of Batman Beyond tying in more closely to the existing DCU. That opens a lot of doors for us in terms of what we can reference, the Hush Saga, and what characters we can bring in. An ancestor of Eobard Thorn, the Reverse Flash, who showed up in the last issue of the miniseries. While there hasn't been a definitive ruling on whether or not Batman Beyond is the future for the present-day Batman of the DCU, it certainly looks closer to that than ever before. Just to wrap up, what's coming up in Batman Beyond? Well, our miniseries established the series' tie, tie to current Bat continuity, while not delving too deeply into the animated series. 
in order to make new readers feel comfy. Our first storyline in the monthly, the reintroduced Justice League of the future, and hopefully had a little more to offer fans of the animated series, while really opening the future up for our newer readers. Now that everyone's on board, we can use all the tools at our disposal. So like I said, issue 4 spotlights Max, and we'll have a series long-term ramifications for her. Issues 5 to 7 bring back one of Terry's deadliest villains from the animated series, someone fans of the show have been absolutely clamouring to see. Issue 8 spotlights another popular animated series villain from a surprising angle, and then we close out our first year with issues 9 to 11, which explores a little of the future world outside Gotham, as Terry ventures away from home and crosses paths with at least one familiar DC Comics face. It's a very cool story that redefines a long-standing DC location in a completely new way. And Chris, Ryan and myself are very excited about it. Ryan and I have been talking about it since before the miniseries ended, actually. And while all this is going on, we're building up to the first story of our second year, which introduces a major new Batman Beyond Villain that I really think will freak people out, but good. I can't wait to get all of these stories. Penciler Ryan Benjamin, inker John Staninsky, colorist David Barron, letterer Steve Wands, editor Chris Conroy, all of whom are doing amazing work, and I have been too much fun on this book. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Needless to say, Adam Beeching clearly has a plan for the series. Now, whether or not the stories that he's going to be telling are going to get good and get high ratings, we'll see, but... I think the fact that he has everything planned through the first year already planned out and going into the second year says something about the series. But on top of that, I think that's also something that he needs to do since this book is one of the books that is currently being released day and uh, day digital, which means it's coming out in digital version as well as uh, you know paperback version the same day it's released in comic book shops. I like what he's saying about, uh, you know, this future world of the DC, how he's going to go beyond Gotham, the show, how in this uh, future, I get not utopia, but in this DC universe, however many years from now, we're going to see outside of Batman and Gotham what's going on with the rest and referencing older stories, kind of giving the Batman Beyond universe its own, I'm trying to figure out how to vocalize what I'm thinking here, but kind of it, it, its own corner, you know, like its own continuity almost, as opposed to just being a satellite Batman title. I'm betting on, uh, he says, one of Terry's dailies enemies comes back that fans have been claiming for. Uh, my first thought went to Blight, the guy who killed his father, or had his father killed. I think that if he has a plan for this thing, then, then maybe he, he already has this groove in the series that we're not aware of, but... Uh, as long as he's keeping it with a definitive continuity, I think it's going to be okay. I hope, it, I hope it does get better than it has been, though. I'm still a bit annoyed that there's still no confirmation whether it is or isn't in proper continuity. Yeah, I think the big thing is, you know, it's it's supposed to be a future version. But there, the problem is, even though Batman Beyond appeared in issue 700 of Batman and kind of reaffirmed that someday Batman Beyond will exist, there's still some holes of exactly how it works out if Bruce Wayne is leading Terry McGinnis, but as we saw in Batman 700, it didn't look like Bruce Wayne, it looked like Damian Wayne. So that that does need some kind of a clarification. I guess if this series is very successful and it continues to go on, there might be some hints 
of it, possibly in some other series that might clear up some of that. I think the only issue with saying it is in a continuity is then you have to match up the current continuity with what's going to happen in the future, and that could lead to some stories not being able to be made because it might conflict with that. Yeah, this is going to sound weird, you know, coming from the continuity guy. I actually like it being more ambiguous. You know, I don't want to know if this is supposed to be the future of the DCAU or the DCU or what. I mean, even though I kind of said so in the past, but it's just, it's very restrictive if you make it, you know, one universe's thing. And if you leave it ambiguous that way, you know, if you want to pretend that this is, you know, the current Earth-1 Batman's future, you can do that. Or if you don't like it, you can say that it's just an alternate reality. But it's like Joe said, too. It makes things restrictive because if you decide to have Mr. Freeze as a villain and, you know, one arc revealing that he's still alive, what if, you know, Grant Morrison wants to kill off Mr. Freeze or turn Mr. Freeze into a scientist for Batman Incorporated? You know, once you start mapping out the future, then you have to line up the past with that future, which gets tricky. Yeah, and then you start to have a lot more continuity issues, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so the next bit of news we have is the weekend of March 4th through March 6th, Emerald City Comic Con took place in Seattle, and DC Comics was obviously there, and they held two panels, DC Nation and DC Universe. Now, the panels were led by the new editor-in-chief, Bob Harris, and even though it was led by somebody other than Dan DiDio, which has been a little bit unusual and Ian Sattler did a great job last year, but it looks like Bob Harris is going to be uh, doing a lot of the panels as as we get into the future of conventions. There was a couple of little uh, Batman pieces, nothing really death-defying, but at Friday's DC Nation panel, Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris did say that the work on Batman Earth-1 is moving forward, but they are planning on releasing it late this year or early next year. Obviously, that contradicts what we've heard when it was first announced in the fall of 2009 when it said it was going to come out in late 2010. Here we are, early 2011. We still haven't seen or heard anything about it. And really, I think the only reason discussion about Batman Earth-1 came up at this panel was because people were asking about other Earth-1 titles because Superman Earth-1 was so successful. And it was so successful that... J. Michael Stravinsky ended up stopping his work on the Superman series and moving over to do a sequel to that book because it was so successful. And then on Saturday, the DC Universe panel took place, and really the only Batman news was that Etrigan will make be making an appearance in Batman the Dark Knight. And it was also mentioned that the Riddler is Finch's favorite villain, so we might be seeing the Riddler as well. We already knew about Etrigan appearing in Batman the Dark Knight because we saw the preview cover for Batman the Dark Knight number 5, which features Etrigan on the cover. So again, nothing really newsworthy that really came out of uh, Emerald City Comic Con, but hopefully C2E2, which we're going to this weekend, will hear a little bit more news about Batman. I think that these Earth-1 delays are coming from Gary Frank because... Uh, Jeff Johns, I don't hear about him having problems with deadlines as much as I do with Gary. I mean, Gary Frank is the whole reason why uh, his last collaboration with Jeff Johns, uh, the Superman Secret Origin thing, got delayed. I remember there was, like, lots of delays with that. 
so no big surprise there. But I'm very curious to see what the reaction of Batman Earth 1 is going to be when it comes out because of the big reaction that Superman got. But by then, the whole Earth 1 hoopla and hype might be over because so much time has passed. So they need to get their butts in gear or get artists that can meet deadlines. Yeah, it is interesting because with the delays at this point, with uh, JMS working on Superman Earth 1 number 2, it's almost as if that might actually come out before Batman Earth 1, which would be quite disappointing. Especially after they hyped it up and released you know, some of the character designs for the characters and got a lot of talk around it, and we haven't heard anything about it and, and since then. And it just seems as if a year is a long time to wait for something, and now, at this point, we're waiting at least two years. Alright, so the next bit of news we have comes from March 8th, and Comic Resources, Robot 6 had a chance to talk to Brian Q. Miller about his upcoming plans for Stephanie in the Pages of Batgirl, so I will read for Comic Resources, and Don will read for Brian Q. Miller. How did the idea come about for Batgirl to have a car, versus a motorcycle, or no vehicle? It was all part of a the Firewall 2.0 upgrade that Bruce's Batman Inc. announcement made possible. The Ricochet was never intended to be Stephanie's. It was Babs' just-in-case vehicle, escape vehicle she kept in her secret garage. The compact is Batgirl's very own little James Bond car. How important is Proxy's presence in terms of allowing the series' dynamics to gel and further set the series apart from the other Bat books? Though she's very important to how Batgirl's world operates, Proxy has some personal issues coming up that may start to get in the way of her duties in Firewall. Speaking of rapports, your approach to Damian Wayne is incredibly refreshing. Are you itching to work with him in the series again? I was surprised at how effective he can be used for comedic effect, for example. Damian and Stephanie are wonderful foils for one another, and I definitely want to use him again. He should be popping up in the big Reaper finale towards issue 28 or so. But Damien is the kind of character who works best in small doses. I love writing him, but would never want him to go full-on Scrappy-Doo. As a side note, I'm pretty sure Damien would kill Scrappy-Doo and Shaggy. Okay, so that's the end of that interview. For those who don't know about the vehicle, we do see the vehicle in Batgirl issue 19, which we'll be reviewing a little bit later. We see the first appearance of the vehicle that uh, Brian Q. Miller was referring to as the Compact. Not a whole lot of news here. It is important. The Firewall 2.0 upgrade, again, that's something that happened in Batgirl number 19, which we'll talk about a little later. But for the most part, it's just good to know that Damien's going to be making his way back to the pages of Batgirl in the future. Yeah, I um, I like uh, the way Miller writes Damien, but it's good that he's not going to try and overuse him because I think we'll get tired of the character if we hear too much of him. Definitely. All right, so moving into our last bit of news... Also on Tuesday, March 8th, DC Comics announced the retailers that Batwoman will once again be delayed. The email stated that orders for issues 1 and 2 will be cancelled and resolicited at a later date. Now, this is the second delay for the series since it was said that it would be resolicited. We won't be seeing these issues until June at the earliest. Interesting to point out that DC also featured a preview to the first issue of the Batwoman series in this week's releases that said available in April. So this must have been a very late decision to prolong the series, which we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about Bat Book delays with Joe after BBFB. All right, so with that being said, that is all of our news. Let's get right into our comic reviews, and the very first book we have is Batman Beyond number three. You're obviously new at this. 
so I'm willing to go easy on you. Batman Beyond Issue 3, written by Adam Beechin, with art by Ryan Benjamin, the final installment of the collateral damage arc. Batman and the Justice League have burst into the mall to find everyone encased in metal. The Justice League take on Mattermaster, whilst Terry carries the civilians out of harm's way. As Mattermaster starts to get the upper hand, Batman attacks him, and uh, the reaction from the Meta Chem wand continues and blasts of energy explode out of Mattermaster. A quick cut to Diana, who is upset that Terry broke his promise when her mother tells her that her brother is getting out next week. Then we're back to the fight and Mattermaster is becoming more dangerous as he heads towards a meltdown. Green Lantern contains the explosion before Mattermaster turns into metal. The civilians are freed from their metal casings as the Justice League asks Terry once again to join the Justice League. He accepts much to boot. Alright, so Batman Beyond number three. Overall, this was an okay conclusion to the first story arc. It was interesting to see Terry kind of take a stand against Bruce and join the Justice League anyway. It was also interesting to hear his provisions of exactly how and why and how he will be a member of the Justice League saying that basically Gotham City is his number one priority and anything that they have is something that he will only do if it makes sense at the time. Um, In addition to this, you can see that Adam Beechin is clearly making some story elements to link things from this story arc to the future story arcs, with the mention of Dana Tan's brother getting out. We assume he's getting out of prison or something of that sort, or maybe a psych ward. We don't know. I don't even really remember Dana Tan's brother from the series. I could be wrong. But you can see that he's planting small elements to carry the story arc so it continues on. And I like to see things like that. There's a lot of other writers like Fabian Desaiza and Brian Q. Miller who have been doing that very, very well in in their respective series. And as many times as we've had problems with Adam Beechin's writing, I think he's finally caught his groove and I'm looking forward to more issues. So Batman Beyond number three, I'm going to give three and a half out of five batterings. I still think that the faces, the way that they're drawn, they're kind of funky in some ways. Like, everybody with dark hair, you know, looks Asian, you know. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that to sound racist or whatever, but it's hard for the faces to get pulled off. I do like what's being set up with Terry joining the Justice League, but Terry having you know, conditions for that, and Bruce being upset about that, and I want to see how that's going to play off, like, if he's going to try and, you know, uh, do what he can to appease both sides and have it blow up in his face, because as we've seen in these early issues, this JLA isn't exactly the JLA that we know from our timeline. They're a little more, you know, kind of frat party JLA, or, you know, that's not the best comparison, but they don't know what they're doing as much, so... And might force Terry to take some matters into his own hands. And, of course, Bruce is going to be there wagging his finger at him the whole time. So I'm interested in what this has set up. And I do like how they're playing the whole him trying to juggle everything with, you know, uh, him keeping his promises to Dana at the same time as, you know, he has his brother. And, you know, now between the Justice League and Bruce, this is somebody who's burning the can on all different ends. And I like the, that kind of aspect in superhero stories. And... That's one of the things I liked about the Batgirl series uh, that's going on, too, that I don't think we see enough of in the Batman books is the superheroes trying to burn the candle on all ends in their civilian identity and hero identity. I think Adam Beechin is getting, you know, to borrow from Dustin. He's starting to get the groove of that for this title. 
Uh, I hope that the art can improve, but I'm interested in seeing where the story is going, so I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Yes, I gave an Adam Beach in book four out of five batterings. And I, too, shall give this three and a half out of five batterings. I like this issue the best so far in the series. I like the art the best. I can't really explain why, but I thought it, start, it starts to finally appeal to me. And it was a nice surprise, or at least a nice end to the story to have him join the Justice League. Um, like everyone else, I like the conditions he had, so... It was sort of both in line with like Batman's character and also in line with Terry's character. You know, if I want to do this, this is the way it's going to be. And um, just them setting up that relationship. One thing I hope that we'll see from this series, now that this story arc is done, is a little more of you know, just Terry on his own. Because in the miniseries, we had the guest stars of Dick Grayson and Hush and everybody. And in this one, we have the Justice League. So I hope now we'll start to see a little more of Terry in his own element, taking on guys his own, you know, his own speed rather than him dealing with people and getting help from other people. So I hope that's where this is leading to. But as, all, as I said, this is going to get three and a half out of five better ranks from me. Yeah, I um, enjoyed this issue the most out of the arc as well. And uh, like everyone else, I liked how he, um, he goes against Bruce because Bruce is really just trying to live through him. And I, I like that relationship between them. But uh, I thought there was this one bit where um, Bruce says how Matter Master is weak because he's not using his powers imaginatively. But he does stuff like take away the moisture so that Aqua Girl can't breathe, which I think is pretty clever. Admittedly, there was a fountain right next to her, so she should have just jumped in. But um, things like that. And uh, he attacks Michael with phosphorus, which is like supposedly burns him, but that's only reacting with water, so might as well just throwing pennies at him. But uh, I enjoy it. I think it's quite a fun book. And even though it's mostly fighting, I'm going to give it three out of five backgrounds. All right, and over on the website, John gave the book three and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give the book three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Azrael number 18. We'll see what the truth is. Azrael number 18, the final issue, written by David Hine, illustrated by Cliff Richards. This issue starts off where we last left off, Azrael, a.k.a. Michael Lane, going up against Fireball, a.k.a. Sami Musawi, who also is known as Azrael in some languages. They are about to fight because it is what the prophets foretold, or some reason like that. And sooner, soon enough, they find that they both are using their abilities against each other, and they're not having any effect. One cannot kill another. So Azrael demands to know, who brought you here? Who told you to fight me? And Sami tells him that a, a man in a mask, or a turban, or a shroud, or whatever that kind of fabric is around his face, started training him to help him use his abilities to fulfill its potential, and said that, you know, it was his prophecy to go up against another Azrael, and if they were to both not be able to kill each other, they were supposed to hook up and uh, fight alongside as God's wishes. That person happens to be Ra's al Ghul, and he led them away to fight so that Sami would be out of the town area when it was attacked, because their political enemies are trying to find Fireball, and they pretty much bomb the blazes out of the entire community around there. So Hakim, who was Sami's uh, cousin, dies, and Sami has no more reason to stay in the country, so he goes along and fights by Michael Lane's side in Gotham. When we get back to Gotham, Michael Lane is greeted by his late brother's wife, Jennifer, and her children, and he uh, goes to meet Father Day and tells him that, you know, you're out of this, um, I'm taking over this group, and I'm, I'm the one who's going to serve the true will of God. Uh, he once again sees the vision of Father Grieve and proclaims that it is his mission to judge the entire city 
and he is God's vengeance and his angel of death, and he is not meant to save people or to bring about peace. He is an instrument of destruction and death. And as the series ends, the story will continue in Batman 708. But for now, that is the end of Azrael, the issue. Alright, so Azrael number 18. I thought they did a decent job of wrapping up a lot of the loose ends that's kind of been hanging around since the beginning of this series. We find out a little bit more about the real relationship that Ra's al Ghul has with the suit of sorrows as far as wanting to have Azrael be on his team to do whatever is necessary, including kill people. It'll be interesting to see how, what Batman's reaction to that is, but uh, for the most part, that will obviously have to wait and see. It is interesting because I guess I really didn't read the solicitations for April when, we re- when we're talking about Batman 708, Red Robin, Gotham City Sirens 22, because I didn't realize that the story was falling so heavily on Azrael. But I guess that does make sense with David Hine writing the issue of Batman 708. That makes a little bit more sense. The one thing that appalls me about the Azrael series was the situation that that Michael Lane had with his brother's sister. (laughs) I don't think I will ever get over that situation. And I think it's just even worse that now they've brought the children into it. And the children have appeared and you know, are asking Uncle Mike to stick around for a while because when they grow up, they're going to find out why he would stick around. And, <laughs> what do you they're not They're not going to appreciate Uncle Mike no more. Um, awesome. with, that being, with that being said, um, I thought the issue was pretty good. I thought the even the even the heavy religious elements that have happened in the past, I, I felt like even though they were here in the in in this issue, they they served a better purpose than in the past, especially when talking about uh, the pl- the pane of glass that is created from Fireball and Azrael fighting, and how the villagers from the village that gets destroyed end up using that as like a kind of like a weeping wall of sorts. I thought that was kind of interesting. The art for this book was a little bit better than normal, in my opinion. But when you compare it to previous issues, it doesn't look that different. Maybe it was just the the better writing that really improved the quality of the art. So for this issue, I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Well, Hasriel's finally done, but instead of wrapping it up, uh, we're forced to continue some of the plot lines and stuff in other books. I think that a final issue should stand alone as a final issue and not lead into a crossover, although it's not a direct crossover. When they say the story continues in an issue of Batman, that's pretty crossover to me, so I didn't like that. They're doing some of the things at the end of the series that they should have been doing at the beginning of the series, like tying some of the stuff with Ra's al Ghul, trying to work with him and everything, and that might have been an interesting angle to play up, you know, from from the beginning, which, yeah, they had elements of it, but now that, you know, the... Asriel's in the Batman universe full force. It's a little more interesting than it was at the beginning when, you know, who's Michael Lane? I don't care about him. And you just had little cameos from people like Talia and Dick Grayson here and there. But that was then. This is now. This is the final issue. And I can only look at it as it is. And I would have liked more closure than what we had. The art was decent enough, though, but, you know, really haven't been interested in the story, and look at that. The story that I'm not interested in isn't over yet, so I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. Um, I, I, I didn't really like this issue because I felt that 
we, we've all been collectively uh, agreeing that the series has been getting better as it's gone on the past few months. But I felt that this one kind of went back to like the more annoying side of the religious aspect. Because really, what all happens in this issue? Azrael and Fireball fight. They can't hurt each other. We learn that Rachel Gould trains Fireball. He joins Michael Lane's side after his village gets, gets bombed to heck and back. And Michael Lane goes back to Gotham and pretty much says nothing. He says, I am going to judge the city, which in essence isn't all that different from what he was doing in the beginning. It sounds like a lot of stuff happened, but really I felt it was a whole lot of nothing that could, have, that could not have been solved. It could have been solved a lot quicker than what was going on. It felt, it, it felt I don't know if padding is the right word, but it just, it just didn't feel like it was legitimately written sufficiently enough. Um, I didn't care for it, and I, I really didn't care for the way they were portraying these villagers at these, as these really, like, I don't know, it, it was a little too cliche for me the way they were just portraying them. And Michael Lane, I think, is a completely annoying character. I mean, there's, he's a very robotic, static sort of character who you just I kind of just want to see get punched in the face by Batman in Batman 708, which I'm not sure is going to happen. And I'll be very surprised if he survives the survives 2011 and is not killed off. But this wasn't a horrible issue. I just wasn't very high on it. I will give this two out of five batterings. Yeah, it said in the back of Azrael continued in Batman 708, but I had a look on the solicitations, and issue 708 is actually written by Tony Daniel. It's just his continuation. And I, it's, uh, I think it's 709 is the, uh, the crossover. So I'm not sure if that's wrong on the solicitations or if it's just being put wrong in the issue. But I thought that was a bit odd. But um, overall, I, I didn't really enjoy the issue that much. I'm kind of glad the series is over. But I mean, I, I was never that into it. But um, yeah, I, uh, the thing that really annoyed me the most was this narration all the way through it, which... Um, especially during the fighting, and it all seemed very rushed. And I can't see what this Fireball character is going to have to do in the future. I think, like we were saying last, I think this is just sort of an extra two issues to try and carry it on, because DC said they wanted a certain amount. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. So with that being said, that is going to give Azrael number 18 two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book. Batman Streets of Gotham, number 20. And that is written by Paul Dini, with art by Dustin Wen. Quite an experience being riddled with questions, isn't it, Batman? Continue the giant Hush story that's been drawn out for much longer, but we don't start off with Hush, we start off with Batman and Catwoman, who are being attacked by the bedbugs' bugs. After Batman throws a grenade canister of some sorts that essentially outputs a lot of CO2 that kills all the bugs instantaneously, and then Catwoman get out of the building very quickly and get away from Bedbug. As the police approaches, they actually start firing at Batman and Catwoman, and the police are being controlled by the Bedbug's bugs. After Batman makes it so that they are no longer doing that, Catwoman takes off, and we see what appears to be a conclusion of seeing Bedbug in the series, which is him saying he's going to have to lay low for a while because the police are going to be coming after him and looking for him a little harder. We then cut to Hush, who is using Carter to gain access to Wayne Enterprises, and once they get inside, it appears that Dr. Death gives Carter some kind of spray and knocks him out. 
we then see Hush and his goonies and Dr. Death being in a storage room and security office and they're setting their plan. But then we see a flashback of Dr. Death basically explaining why exactly he despises Thomas Wayne and the Waynes in general. Uh, essentially, it's also kind of a link between Judson Pierce and Sal Guzzo, as we've seen in previous stories as well, where Carl Heffron, who is Dr. Death, the alter ego of Dr. Death, was hired by them to essentially get rid of the problem of the clinic that was where it was located. So Dr. Death comes up with this plan to infect rats and let the rats loose. They end up kidnapping the boy, beating him, and having the rat bite him, hoping that the disease will be carried a little bit more. What ends up happening with that situation is the boy ends up uh, warning the doctors at the clinic, including Thomas Wayne and Martha Kane. They end up getting disease control, and the entire plan is completely screwed. Uh, Sal Guzzo is pretty ticked off about the failure of this and decides to throw a bunch of gasoline cans in the building next door and set them off. After the explosion, the police show up, but not before the boy who was kidnapped earlier is about to escape. Sal Guzzo grabs him and throws him in the car. They pull away, but as they pull away, the Justice Society of America shows up, including Green Lantern, Alan Scotts, Jay Garrick Flash, Hawkman, and John Zatara, and they essentially make very quick use of uh, the villains, but also fix a lot of the problems and save the people. From that point, Tommy Elliott's father decides to pull a gun on Sal Guzzo and says, this is as far as we're going. Judson Pierce pops out of the car and actually shoots Tommy Elliott's father. So after that, Dr. Death goes over a uh, long monologue explaining how exactly, from that point on, there was heroes always present in Gotham City in one way or another, but that also caused a lot of the villains to get a little bit more eccentric. Um, As he's doing this, he's essentially also saying through his monologue that he's created a way where not only will uh, everybody in the Wayne building be taken out, but also uh, Elliot and Judson Pierce will be taken out as well. At this point, Tommy Elliot's pretty understanding of what's going on, knocks him out and takes the uh, chemical and says, I'll take things from here. That's the end of Streets of Gotham, number 20. So overall, the issue... Well, it's hard to say, because we get this part where Bedbug appears in the first third of the book. I don't understand why he appeared in the first third of the book. Honestly, I don't even understand why Bedbug was ever appearing in this series to begin with other than to draw out the story longer than it already needed to be. The sudden conclusion of Bedbug being in the book shows that obviously the the series is ending and they needed to divert their focus to what was going on with Tommy Elliott to wrap up that story since after this issue we only have one more issue left. But in addition to that, the character of Bedbug is just, I think, going to be another one of those failed attempts by Paul Dini to create another villain... I don't see anybody at all wanting to use this character in the future, so I think this character is pretty much seen his last uh, comic book issue. When we get into the Tommy Elliott story, personally, I think the flashback stories are kind of cool, and I, I'm really looking forward to the series that's coming out in May, the mini series with Scott Snyder, that's called Batman's Gates of Gotham. But in my opinion, Scott Snyder tends has been telling better stories in Detective Comics than Paul Dini has in Streets of Gotham. 
But with that being said, Paul Dini is a good writer, and he can write things good. He did do a good job at combining all these elements to make us understand why exactly Dr. Death despises all of these different people, because before there was no real explanation from previous issues when he just said, hey, I don't like, I don't like the Waynes, and I don't like the Elliots, and this, that, and the other. But it explains everything in this issue. I also like the idea of bringing in the Justice Society of America to kind of balance out the situations that were occurring in Gotham City at the time. There's a nice little add-in. But on top of that, talking about the art, Dustin Wynn's art, again, is very superior. To see him draw the classic Justice Society of America characters was a real treat, in my opinion. And on top of that, he also gave a nice little homage to Dr. Death's first appearance, basically an homage to the cover of Detective Comics number 29 through a panel that he drew for this series. So props to him for doing that. I think this issue um, may not be the best issue, but it's not going to be the worst issue um, that Streets of Gotham has had. Like Dustin said in his introduction, the long, drawn-out Tommy Elliott saga, this has been one of the more interesting things about this era of Batman, the whole, you know, what I feel is uh, Paul Dini's revitalization of Tommy Elliott. However... At this point, this storyline has been going on for three years. I am kind of ready for a Tommy Elliott break. It's kind of like Calculator versus Oracle. You know, it's it's good when it's good, but, you know, enough is enough. And I do like Paul Dini, you know, doing this whole overarching thing with, you know, some, with, you know, some characters from the original Heart of Us returning and everything like that, but it's long and drawn. Um, I do like the banter between Batman and Catwoman. Very reminiscent of the animated series, actually, although, you know, that comes as no surprise considering the guy who wrote it. The uh, the, uh, the homage to the Detective uh, Comics 29 cover, I love that. <laughs> and I like how they even made him look, you know, a little bit more like a modern version of what the Golden Age Batman looks like. That was cool. But, I mean, you know, I'm getting tired of Hush, and I want them to, you know, kind of wrap this up and get a move on, but... You know, there was some cool Easter eggs, so I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. The first half of the story, I really didn't care. I I was not invested in what was going on. I didn't care. The second half of the story really picked up, but I found it to be very exciting. So, logically, that would would give this, like, a middle-of-the-road score. It's difficult, though. I mean, I like the art. Dustin Wynn is, like, I love reading his Batman comics. I mean, there's always a treat every time. You, You have homages. You have new characters. You have nice, nicely drawn action scenes, but um, man, I really wish Paul Dini would like pick up with the story. I mean, I know it's ending, but I mean, there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of going on. It's this ongoing history lesson with uh, you know old gangsters that we never heard of until very recently. And I liked it better. It was more, it more had to do with Thomas Wayne and, and uh, Martha Kane and Zatara, but that's kind of been pushed in the background, you know, even now. So it's just hard for me to care about this book, but. I can't say I didn't enjoy parts of it. It's it's difficult, but uh, I mean I'm gonna have to give this a score about maybe two and a half out of five batterings. I, I just wish it were better. I was um, very disappointed with this issue, and uh, even with the art, I thought uh, Dustin when for the first time actually let me down because it just didn't seem to be as much passion in there as he normally puts in, and a lot of the background which he's very good at. They seem quite half-hearted, and some of them were almost absent, just had very plain backgrounds. And, um, yeah, Bedbug, turns out there was no need for him. He must have just been padding, because he basically, 
after his little scene, so he basically walks off and says, oh, yeah, I'll, um, I'll come back later. And um, the issue was predominantly a flashback about Dr. Death, and it was interesting, but we're supposed to be, it's supposed to be a story about Hush, and I actually counted, Hush was only nine panels in this, issue, in this whole issue. So I think I'm going to have to give this one and a half out of five batterings, and it's just because I'm tired of how dragged out this has been. And the only reason I'm looking forward to the next issue is because then I can just put this series to bed, because I'm getting tired of being disappointed with it. And over on the website, Riddle Me This gave it one and a half out of five veterans. So that is going to give Batman Streets of Gotham number 21 two out of five veterans. Let's move into our next book, Birds of Prey number 10. Bruce Wayne? Knew it. And that makes you Dick Grayson. And you are? Sorry. As a not-quite-official freelancer, I have to go the extra mile to protect my privacy. She's Barbara Gordon. Gordon? As in the commission's kid? All right, the death of Oracle, or is it? Well, we open up. Calculator thinks that he just killed Oracle by blowing up the plane. He has the rest of the birds hostage, and Huntress decides to make the best of the situation by trying to psych Calculator out. And in her monologue, internal monologue, she notes that basically... Calculator is a very, very dangerous guy when he's in front of a computer. But when he isn't, he's, you know, just a scared person who's very easy to manipulate. Especially since, as we kind of get hints of, but it's not stated outright, that he's been even more unstable since Oracle mind-wiped him um, after that last Batgirl arc. So Huntress is able to kind of, you know, get inside his head with smooth talking and is able to manipulate the hostage situation so that not only can she and the other birds get free, but... She basically turns the calculator's hired help against him, you know, so that they think this guy's ridiculous and, you know, they don't want to help him anymore. And one of the lines I like is, you know, you killed Oracle, that's great, but now Superman's pissed at you. You killed the person that all these heroes relied on, so good luck. So calculator gets captured, and Huntress, she's mad at this guy. She wants to kill him, but her internal monologue says, no, no, no. For this plan to work, he has to be able to, you know, live so that he can report this to everybody else. But she decides to taunt him some more and, you know, talk about, you know, they give him nightmares. Oracle meets up with the immediate Bat family, Batman and Robin, both versions of Batman, Red Robin and Batgirl, and uh, Miss Misfit for some reason. It's like the Bat family <laughs> and Misfit, which... Uh, the one of the other orphans that Barbara abandoned at one point, I guess they reconciled between the panels. Uh-huh. And she talked about, you know, how before that we get a montage of all these heroes basically like about to get murdered and calling Oracle for help and Oracle not answering. And I think, <laughs> yeah, so Stephanie pretty much says to her, all these people are calling for your help. Are you pretty much going to ignore them? And she says, I have to. For all intents and purposes, everyone needs to think that Oracle's dead. She and Bruce are going to, you know, do things behind the scenes. And Wendy Harris and her role as proxy is going to pull more of the slack. So Huntress and Black Canary, you know, talk, you kind of have like a post, you know, death of Oracle chat on the rooftop when Catwoman shows up to pay her respects and reminds the birds that, you know, she was a part of their group in the early days, which in the Birds of Prey miniseries before the first ongoing series started, they did go on a mission with Catwoman, and Catwoman did communicate with Oracle. But Catwoman says, is Oracle really dead? And they don't. They say yes, but, you know, kind of vaguely give her a not-straight answer. And she tells them, if you guys are going to pull this plan off, 
you need to get better at line. And that's the end of Birds of Prey, Death of Oracle. Birds of Prey, number 10. There was a couple issues with this book. There was a couple points where it seemed as if there was an artist change where Black Canary was drawn one way and then she was drawn a completely different way in other panels. I'm not real sure what the, the, the issue with that was. There also seemed to be a little bit of unnecessary detail in some of the costumes. I didn't really understand that. Like, Huntress's gauntlets, for some reason, had all these weird swirlies on them uh, towards the end of the book what, during the meeting with Catwoman. Not really understanding what the point of unnecessary detail is, especially when it becomes swirls. That just seems like a waste of time, and you could use that time to better something else that it requires more detail. The story overall, it's a very simplistic story. Obviously, what Oracle's trying to achieve is pull off her death so that everyone assumes that she's dead so that she can go back to what she was before, which is being Oracle for the core Batman universe. Which I appreciate and I enjoy, but at the same time, I still think that's going to present a problem since she's, at this point, still appearing in other books as Oracle. Just last month, she appeared in the Giant Size Adam issue in the DC Universe with Oracle as one of the main characters in that book. So... I think it's going to be a little bit difficult to actually play this off because she's played such a large role in the DC Universe for such a long time that outside of the DC Universe, from a writer's perspective on the comics, it's going to take some time before Oracle's truly not playing the info jock that she has been all of these years. Um, with that being said, the sea calculator kind of lose a lot of umph in what he's trying to achieve by basically crying like a little girl. That, to me, was... A perfect moment because it really just shows that the guy really just deserves to be behind a computer and that's what he's intended to be not being out in public shooting people and shooting down things because he truly is just a little girl <laughs> if only his daughter was able to see that and see the the man that he really is it would do wonders so with all of that being said i don't think this issue was horrible so i'm going to give it three and a half out of five batarangs all right deep breath and away we go. There are so many holes in Oracle's plan. Where to even begin? First of all, if she wants all these heroes to think that Oracle was dead, okay, sure, there's that. But it's been established that half of the DCU knows that she's Barbara Gordon anyway. Like, it used to be a bigger secret, but slowly writers got more relaxed with it. And you'd have people like um, Dr. Midnight, like, hanging around in Oracle's clock tower with Barbara Gordon and half of the Justice League. So these people who are calling her for help that are supposed to think that she's dead, what are they going to think when they see Barbara Gordon, you know, like not in the obituary section, but strolling along Gotham University <laughs> or computer class or something? You can't have people think that Oracle's dead if they know that Barbara Gordon's alive, if they're supposed to know that Barbara and Oracle are one of the same. That is a big what there, and I don't know how they're going to get around that. That would be like if Tim Drake was to fake his death to the Batman family as Red Robin, but still show up to, like, Wayne Manor dinner, you know, every day as Tim Drake, you know, and say to Alfred, oh, yeah, it's too bad that Red Robin's dead. <laughs> That's stupid, first of all. And then, you know, there's the ethical questions of Oracle, you know, like, these people who are, like, they're not calling her saying Oracle. Can you run a diagnostics check on these fingerprints? No, like, <laughs> they're, they're, like, getting choked by, like, you know, robots saying, Oracle, help, you know. These are life-or-death situations, and yeah, she's not answering. At least disguise your voice and have an answer thing like, no, 
Oracle's gone, but this is, you know, Jarvis from the Iron Man movies, and this is what you need to do, or something. And part of me, you know, is like, okay, you know, maybe the fact that Barbara's making some ethically bad decisions, maybe that's a good thing, and it makes her more human, and it's something that's going to come back to bite her in the butt later. And that's what I got the sense of from the conversation with Catwoman at the end, that ultimately, this death of Oracle thing is meant to fail. It's meant that the cat's going to come out of the bag, you know, no pun intended. Judge you by Selena's thing that, like, you guys have to be good liars for this to get pulled off. And another thing, okay, the immediate Batman family and Misfits. And then, like, Tim makes the comment, you know, which for all the Cassandra fans out there, oh, well, what about Cassandra? No, 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 the burden is too much for Cassandra. But Misfit can take it, can't you, Misfit? It was just, like, really weird, like... You're stealing everything I want to say. <laughs> yeah, like, only a select few, the most trusted members of the Batman family, can know that Oracle's alive. What about Cassandra? Oh, no, not Cassandra. What about Misfit? Oh, yeah, she's cool. <laughs> Just as a side note, we haven't even seen Misfit since, like, the last Birds of For real, like, like, like before, before Batman R.I.P. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, maybe she's been somewhere else that I haven't seen her, but yeah. The way that it was left off is that, like, at the end of Birds of Prey, she was in, like, Barbara's care. Like, she you know, was supposed to be, like, her, like, surrogate daughter. She, she was in yeah. a, a Bad Girl Redemption. And Barbara, like, basically wrote a note saying, like, I'm running away from home, everybody. You know, by Misfit, you're on your own. And, like, that, that hasn't been dealt with at all. Like, you know, how does Misfit feel about this? Well, <laughs> I guess the way to earn forgiveness is to say you're part of our secret club of... <laughs> and then Misfit's got to say to Stephanie how stupid Stephanie's costume is. I know! Look in the mirror. So, I think Death of Oracle would have been a really good idea if executed differently, but, like, I just have so many questions about what this new status quo of Oracle is supposed to be, and I think that they could have done more to establish it, and I think they could have established it better. And the only way that it's going to work for me is if it's supposed to fail. This is supposed to be, like, some grand mistake of Barbara's. So, I'm giving this one out of five batterings. God almighty. I hate this book. I have hated this, this, this title for months now. And I've not wanted to. I've wanted to enjoy Birds of Prey. But this Death of Oracle thing is like one of the most obnoxious, poorly written storylines in an era where there have been a lot of bad stories. First of all, the art sucks. Like, Dustin was saying, like, the inconsistencies with Huntress's costume and stuff and, like, how Bur- Bur- Black Canary was drawn. <sighs> the art totally sucks. I, I, and it was such a last issue. The, I don't like how the calculator is drawn. And I suppose it makes sense that he's a wimp in real life, but he's a big shot behind computers. Okay, I guess that makes sense. But when you put it up against, like, how the birds have been acting this entire arc, like, just these obnoxious, you know, these, I don't know. I've, I've not been digging it. I hated how he built up this Mortis character to, you know, this, this big, super cool, deadly enemy. And last, this, this goes a little bit towards last year, but she's taken out by Black Canary off screen. And she's like, almost like comatose. We need to run. We need to get out of here right away. We don't stand a chance, but we don't see any of it. We don't see, after all that buildup, we see none of it. And there's no reason why she's afraid. Oh, because Black Canary is slightly mad. Come on. <sighs> Josh hit up a lot. Oracle's plan doesn't make sense. She basically decides on a whim. She's on a fake her death because more than two people know who she is. And, oh, oh, the calculator might find out again. So she must, you know, leave everybody in the wind. Blue Beetle's fighting an OMAC, and she's like, beep, 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 beep. I mean, there's no reason for this. She doesn't even, like, 
at least send other people to help them from an anonymous source. I mean, she just says, well, I might be in trouble if people know about Oracle, so I must, you know, fake my death. I mean, it's like, it's like a Simpsons joke, you know, you must fake your death to get out of this. You can't do anything else. Faking your death is the only way. It's like, Apu, you know you can get, get out of this arranged marriage, you can fake your death. All you need is a car bomb. I mean, come on! And, and I mean, anybody could say, oh, well, there's no body in that, in that robot helicopter. It's not hard to, you know, find out that someone's faked their death. That's not, that's not a fail-proof plan anyway. <laughs> and then there's the, and there's the pathetic line, what about Cassandra? Oh, she's way too busy doing exactly nothing. That was annoying. The art sucked. The story sucked. This gets zero out of five batterings. I don't really feel right saying anything after that. <laughs> well, there's not really much I can add, is there? <laughs> um, yeah, I hated the art as well. I mean, everyone had, like, balloon muscles. It was just awful. And um, I thought that all the dialogue seemed really forced. Nothing unexpected happened. And I'm still annoyed that we don't know why the Hawk went to see the Penguin when they were, like, on drugs or something. So I'll give this one out of five. That's right. All right, so that is going to give Birds of Prey number 10... One out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman Confidential, number 54. The final issue of Batman Confidential, which is issue 54, and uh, the conclusion of the Superpowers arc, written by Mark Guggenheim with art by Jerry Bingham. We start the issue in the flashback sequence with one of the three Chinese we've seen before calling himself Dark Knight, but the leader of the group is called away to Gotham to fight the leader of an invading army. As the two start to fight, we begin the ongoing comparative panels of Flashback and present Batman fighting the monster. In the Flashback sequence, the leader of the Chinese group has his neck broken before Dark Knight stabs the enemy in the back. And then, back in the present, Batman is still struggling against the army of clones. Back to the Flashback, the leader is revived by Re, but she's too drained to revive the enemy that Dark Knight stabbed. Not happy about this, Dark Knight walks off and uh, he's furious about being betrayed when he's overwhelmed by pain. It turns out the elixir he drank in the previous issue was a form of opium and he's suffering withdrawal. But meanwhile, Batman in the present is suffering from internal bleeding. But Batman is then rescued by the Justice League and the monster explains that all he's trying to do is be part of the next step in humanity. In the past, Dark Knight leaves the group, but is talked back into it by Ree. In the present, Batman joins the Justice League. And that is the end of Super... Alright, so Batman Confidential 54. I don't really have a whole lot to say as far as good things. The only uh, plus side of this issue was probably Jerry Bingham's art. It did a nice job of uh, taking a couple different artistic elements and combining them to give a complete story, even though it was taking place in the past and the present. But the story overall was just really bad. I get the idea behind this story, now that we've seen the last issue, was that this is how Batman comes to be part of the Justice League of America. I'm pretty sure at some point this has already been explored, so there was no real need for this to occur again. So, on top of that, this story arc did nothing for me. This writer who did this story arc is also one of the writers for the upcoming Green Lantern movie, and I really, really, really hope he does a better job with the Green Lantern movie, because he definitely doesn't do a good job with this story. At this point, I'm kind of glad Confidential's coming to a close. I've been really not liking a lot of the things that have happened in Confidential. I think 
over the past couple years, the only good issue that happened in Confidential was Batman Confidential number 49, which was a standalone issue, which was bringing Batman to his classic detective role, and that was really the only thing. So, overall, this story I'm going to give a total of one out of five Batarangs, but that's only because of the art. And for the series, it's, it's a good thing it's coming to an end. One less book for us to cover that we really have been not wanting to cover for a long time. An unspectacular end to an uh, unspectacular series. I'm glad that this book is over because it's really redundant to have all these extra bat books unless one of them serves a purpose. And this was kind of like the fill-in, like out-of-continuity title. But I mean, now that like, you know, series like Batman and Robin, like they're almost becoming, you know, fill-in stuff with, you know, serv- I mean, some of the stories that are in there, these little three-part arcs, those would have worked in Confidential as well. I mean, this issue itself, the story was, like I said, unspectacular. The art wasn't too bad, you know, I mean, but I've said this before on the podcast, you can have awesome art, but, you know, if you don't have a good story to support it, you know, you're not going to enjoy the book enough to pick it up again, you know. I'm not going to pay two ninety nine, you know, to look at good art. And luckily, I won't be paying two ninety nine for this book anymore. One out of five batterings. See you later, Confidential. Um, I was actually starting to dig the story a little bit. The art has been pretty consistent. I've I've, I've kind of liked the art. Um, sometimes I didn't, but most times I do. I'm getting very sick of the phrase Dark Knight just because people have been overusing it a lot, and I really wish it wasn't here. But I was sort of digging the story. You know, he's um, the flashbacks of him training with other people, becoming a, a different persona, trying to be Batman. And I was digging it, and then I was like, this looks a little familiar. And then I realized that, you know, I turned my head slightly around my room, and I found an issue of uh, Batman Lost Years where they did the same thing with Nightwing. So, I mean, it was a good story, I think, but it, it's been told before. And certainly him joining the Justice I don't know if he joins the Justice League, but if this is the story where he joins the Justice League, there have been several stories told about that, and there have been much better told stories where he does that. So that kind of took away all the purpose of the entire story arc, unfortunately. And it's a shame because I think these creators can do some good stuff, but this was just one big mistake. Uh, so I'll, I'll give this uh, two out of five batterings. Yeah, I... Uh... Really enjoyed the art, but I, I definitely preferred the um, the present day art over the watercolors. But um, I thought that was really nice. Uh, overall, I thought it was a pretty interesting conclusion to the art. I thought the um, the fight at the end of all the villain with all the clones and stuff that kind of happened a bit quickly. In the conclusion to that, it wasn't really explained what happened. But a big problem I had it was. This Reed character can supposedly reincarnate people, which is how she got their leader back from the dead after his neck was broken. But Batman, oh, Dark Knight, skewers a guy, like, in the back of a sword. It comes out through his chest, blood everywhere. And then he revives him by giving him CPR. I'm pretty sure it's like getting your head cut off and then, like, giving CPR. Oh, it's all right, he's alive. <laughs> so I really didn't get that. But yeah, I'm not sad this series is being cancelled. And it's not ended on a high note, but it could have been worse. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Batman Confidential number 54 one and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 21. Watch yourselves, man. These guys are crazy. Written by Peter Damasi and illustrated by Patrick Gleason. This issue starts off with the family of Kirk Langstrom, i.e. Francine Langstrom and her two children. They're in the Angels get-up that we saw the guy who died in the previous issue. They're in that same costume with a bomb. She's holding a bomb. 
and they they're leaping off of a t- tall building, but they're saved at the last moment by Batman and Robin. When the bomb goes off, we see this building completely illuminated like the bats from the last issue, and a man who was just this this white figure screaming, "Your white knight is here, Gotham. Goodbye, darkness." So we're led to assume that this guy is calling himself the White Knight. Batman and Robin go after him, but before they can touch him, he sets off this sort of device, which sets off its giant whirlpool and sweeps them away in tons of water. Back at the Bat Bunker, the toxicology report from the previous victim comes in and shows that he has this drug called ketamine into his system, which is used for recreational drug use. They also find out that the angel wings he was wearing, obviously synthetic and also pulled from... um, special types of birds to make that make those wings, which were seagulls, pigeons, sparrows, and peregrine falcons, which, you know, are certainly can't be found in Gotham City. So Dick and Damien try to scope out peregrine falcons or any type of birds they can find in the night sky, but before they can do that any further, the bat signal flashes on. And right before then, they find out that the victim from the last issue was named Douglas Zaz, who turned out to be the brother of Mr. Zaz. We cut to the White Knight, who has a number of toys or mannequins of certain Batman rogues gallery, such as Mr. Zaz and Man Bat, and we also see Joker, Two-Face, Clayface, Penguin, and we cut it on the last one, which is the Mad Hatter, and the White Knight saying that, you know, the sins of the mother and father are the sins on everyone. We cut then to a, a, a crime scene where we see a family of four dressed in the, in the angel wings, strung up like mannequins on the ceiling. And we find out that this is the, the late family of Jervis Tetch, obviously the Mad Hatter. Uh, Commissioner Gordon is getting very upset just by the fact of that innocent families are being killed by this. And the issue ends with the dynamic duo trying to get to the next super criminal's family before the White Knight does. But unbeknownst to them, a whole string of people are strung out right in front of him to use for whatever he wants to. And that was Batman and Robin. All right, Batman and Robin 21. This issue, I think, was a lot, a much better improvement over the last issue. We didn't see any unnecessary segments with Bruce, Dick, and Tim watching some TV shows and eating popcorn, because we don't need to see that. Uh, we can see stupid things like that in Batman Confidential, and since that series has been canceled, we don't need to see things like that at all. So with all of that being said, I, I think this issue, like I said, was a huge improvement. I like the stories that bring the other villains into the story without actually bringing them in, if that makes any sense. The fact that this new villain, the White Knight, is bringing the villains' families into it and going after them, it's going to be quite interesting when these villains find out that their family members are being killed by this guy. What's going to happen to this guy? This character, I could actually see having a future in the Batman universe as far as, you know, being used by other other writers because of the situations that he's making happen by killing off some of these villains' families. A lot of these villains are going to want some want to take some kind of revenge on this guy. Once he goes to Arkham, what's going to happen? Well, we might see that in the next issue when he gets captured and he's taken Arkham and he has to you know, be right in a cell right next to Victor Zaz or Jervis Tetch. We'll see what happens. But this is interesting to me, more so than what we saw in the last issue. The art, I think, was a little bit of an improvement over the last issue as well. There was a little bit more detail. There, It was a little bit more thought out as well as uh, not only the art but also the story. And I'm actually interested to see the next issue, which for a while I haven't really been interested to see the next issue of Batman and Robin for quite some time. So with this issue, I'm going to give it 
three and a half out of five veterans. I like how things are gearing up in the middle chapter of this three-part story arc. The art is really good. The way that, like, some of the dead bodies are drawn and the victims. The Langstroms looked, like, really creepy. Like, they were, like, brainwashed cult members at the beginning. Yeah, but when, you, when you can get that, like, creepy sense from reading a Batman comic, that's, you know, I, I feel that that's one of the strengths of the Batman series, and we should get that more often. I like the whole aspect of the villain's families being targeted. I don't, I can't remember when that's been done in any other superhero comic before, and it, it'll be an interesting way to see different sides of these villains because, you know, we can learn new things about them and their background. And it's interesting that he had a doll of the Joker. Like, <laughs> who is the Joker's family? Like, I hope that they go after that because we know that the Joker had that, like, dead pregnant wife from Killing Joke, unless his origins changed this month. But uh, one of my complaints is the whole... Like, people still think that Damien is the same character from Batman and Son, you know, that he that he didn't go through all the evolution in the Morrison series. So, like, the way that everyone just writes Damien is that, like, whatever he says to somebody, it's a sarcastic remark. Like, Alfred's like, oh, you're going to be a good detective. I am a great detective. And Dick Grayson's like, let me tell you about this educational thing. Huh, you're so boring. I can't wait to tweet about it. Although I did like that exchange between Damien and Dick about, you know, the pigeons and Gotham. It was an interesting way to do some exposition and some background information and make it entertaining and see that into the story. And this is supposed to be Batman and Robin, so we're supposed to have, you know, some of the Batman and Robin dynamic. But I wish that we'd get, you know, a more, quote-unquote, modern voice for Damien as opposed to people writing him like it's still 2008 or 2009. But this story arc's going well, and I'm interested to see where it goes. Uh, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batteries. This is a, an improvement over this last issue, if for nothing else than pacing. I thought this issue told the story well. There was little, very little padding, and I thought that we definitely got a really good, interesting mystery going on in our hands. You know, who is the White Knight going to go after next? Why does he want to... I mean, I guess we don't know why he wants to kill these, uh, these family members of the villains, but to what end, you know? How did he get his powers? What, who is, what is he about? Dustin's right when he said this guy could definitely have a future, and it's a very interesting uh, motif. And also, the name White Knight, you know, that, that makes sense. It's, it's an interesting villain. I thought the art was pretty good. I'm loving the colors, but the individual pencils, I think, by Patrick Gleason, leave a little to be desired. It's not bad art. Some of the facial expressions are a little strange. It actually reminded me a lot of Andy Clark in his uh, detective run uh, a couple years back. Overall, this is a good issue. I liked it better than the last one, but I'll give this a straight three out of five better ranks. Yeah, I like this issue more than last month, but it couldn't have been any worse. And uh, I like the art more, but I don't like the way Gleason draws Dick and Damien out of costume. But um, I, I, I like the way he draws Batman's cowl and things like that. So overall, I thought the art was pretty good, and I thought the illuminated panels were really good. I really like those. Now that the arc has a story, I'm quite interested in it. And although I'm a little skeptical of the White Knight as an actual villain, I think his his plan and what he's trying to do is really interesting. But, uh, yeah, one of my problems is, like Josh said, I, the people are right. He is writing Damien wrong because he, he's writing him as this spoiled brat, which he isn't anymore. And also, like when he said, like, oh, I'm going to tweet this, I don't like when there's sort of uh, references to real companies and real brands in Batman comics because it takes away, I think, from that sort of timelessness that Gotham City has. But um, e even if he was joking, I don't think Damien would be the sort of person to use Twitter or anything like that. Just because I think he takes himself way too seriously for that sort of thing. Because, I mean, what's he going to do? It's like, 
Oh yeah, just say Batman from the Riddler and Enigma. LOL. I, I just can't see Damien's Twitter would be more interesting than Charlie Sheen's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then to throw a few of my more nitpicky things, just because I can. I didn't, you know, when they were searching for the Peregrine Falcon, I thought it was ridiculous how fast they found it. They're just sitting up on this thing going, oh yeah, they're really rare birds in Gotham City. Oh wait, there's one. Just zoom in over there. Oh yeah, can you see it? There's one. I thought that was stupid. <laughs> and then the bit where uh, Batman and Robin are being washed off the rooftop and they stab their batarangs into the ground to try and hold on and it looks awesome, but isn't that what their gauntlets are for? I mean, they're right on their arms underneath. I mean, you've seen it in Batman Begins. It's, and then final thing is when Commissioner Gordon at the end and he comes out and he's obviously upset and he just throws his glasses on the floor. But he needs those to see. I mean, how's he going to get home? <laughs> he won't be able to drive home now. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to call his daughter, Barbara, help. I'm in the middle of the road. Give me GPS. Barbara. Oh, no, she's not answering because we're dead. <laughs> That's right. Uh, glasses are expensive as well. I mean, you know, it's not like he can just buy a new pair every time he just like, gets a bit annoyed, just throws them on the floor. So... But, yeah, definitely better than the last issue, but I'm a bit tainted by it still, so I'll give it three out of five batterings. And over on the website, Melinda gave it four out of five batterings, so that is going to give Batman and Robin number 21 three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Batman... You know, Bats, we've been doing this little runaround of ours for years. It's been loads of laughs, but the sad fact is none of us are getting any younger. After uh, being delayed for... Roughly a month and a half, we finally have the issue. Written by Grant Morrison, art by Yannick McKenna, and Michael Lacombe. This issue, it's, it's very hard to give a recap of exactly what occurred in this book because it's very hard to understand exactly what happened. Um, we start off where we're clearly in the past. There's a group of superheroes who are sent in to find out whether the, this person called Deadless is uh, inside this crash. We know that there's a war taking place and the U.S. Army um, is being told that uh, he's in this place, but these this group of heroes need to go make sure that he's there and lock him inside. After that occurs, they say that they've locked him in, but a lot of them have been taken out. We don't know exactly what happened after that. But then cut to the presence where we see a movie star who is pretty famous in Argentina, being basically held hostage by a villain called Papagayo, who has a parrot on his shoulder. And just as he's about to be killed, Batman and El Gacho pull up and take out a bunch of the henchmen. Um, we see a bunch of uh, words in Spanish. Again, don't speak Spanish. So it's, I'm having a real hard time figuring out what's going on. So Batman... And El Gacho take out the henchman. Uh, Papagayo tries to escape by knocking over a bunch of crates of scorpions and jumping in a hot air balloon. Batman, El Gacho, and this movie star end up latching on to the hot air balloon and are able to escape using the hot air balloon. Papagayo ends up falling over the side while Batman and El Gacho are trying to find out the name of his boss. They find out from the parrot that his boss's name was Ouroboro. Uh, we then cut to Buenos Aires, and we see who we later find out is the alter ego of El Gacho. Bruce Wayne is seen with Tristessa, 
and El Gacho basically makes a point to not to go uh, do a tango with her because she knows the tango of death. Bruce Wayne clearly has is very skilled when it comes to dancing and is able to do the uh, tango very well. Gacho, whose name is Don Santiago, gets ticked off and storms off. Bruce Wayne sees this and says, oh, I must take off. Uh, we then find out El Gacho and Batman go down to El Gacho's, I guess you could call it, Batcave of sorts. We actually see a, a picture of the Club of Heroes, including Batman, on his desk. They have a little exchange where El Gacho says, Why is Bruce Wayne posing as Batman? I've met Wayne. You're not Wayne. After a little bit of an exchange, Bruce Wayne tells El Gacho that uh, Teresa gave him a, a ring that uh, is a snake eating itself. And as that occurs, a police alarm goes off and Batman and El Gacho head towards it. They get to the building after finding out that the boss is still inside. They go inside the building to find out that it was a trap. Of course, it's another death trap, like we saw in Batman Incorporated number one, where they have to put on taser gauntlets and fight each other. One will live and one will die. And we find out that if they don't fight, the three blind children that were kidnapped from earlier in the issue will drown in sewage. And we find out that this is all being orchestrated by someone we suppose was dead, El Sombrero, to be continued in next issue. Okay, so Batman Incorporated number three. I've got a ton of problems with this. Number one, I don't speak Spanish. I know there are some people out there who do speak Spanish. But since the main audience of this book is English, I'd really like it if editorial included some inclusions of translations for some of these things that are specifically in Spanish. I can't figure out what's going on if I don't know how to read Spanish, and I'm not going to go teach myself Spanish so I can read four little blurbs in Batman Incorporated. Not to mention, even though I am English, and I know that in the beginning of the book, even though it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on in the beginning of the book, uh, we do know that based on the map that's shown, we have really no idea where this is. Um, it gives coordinates. The location that's shown in the map is not something that is very distinguished as far as an existing place it's hard to even tell what language they're speaking. It seems as if they're speaking a British, with a British accent, British words, but it's very hard to figure out. I've never seen any of these superheroes. I have no idea who these people are. And the other issue is that I can't, like, I assume that this was taking place in the past, but at the same time, the uh, the military looks like they are wearing gear that would be more more uh, futuristic or present time as, as what we would have nowadays. So it was very hard to understand what all was being said in the beginning because of the, the specific... I can't really understand the lingo. We, I, I, it's, I've determined that it, it is English, but at the same time, there was also somebody called uh, Knight who's not the Knight from Britain. So who knows what's going on here? It, it's very difficult to understand what's going on. On top of that, I don't understand that the point where we get Bruce Wayne walking into El Gacho's hideout... El Gacho says, well, you're not Bruce Wayne, and why is Bruce Wayne masquerading as Batman? I've met Wayne. Why would El Gacho let Bruce Wayne into his hideout if Bruce Wayne wasn't Batman? 
why would Bruce Wayne be putting on a Batman costume if Bruce Wayne wasn't Batman? And why would El Gacho, who's stating that Bruce Wayne is not Batman and Batman is not Bruce Wayne, let Bruce Wayne into his hideout? If that didn't get you lost, I don't know what would, but it, it, this, this issue is very ridiculous. The art was probably the saving point as it was very detailed and very thought out throughout, clearly with the crazy convoluted story that Grant Morrison's writing in this issue, we clearly uh, have a little bit of distinction with the art that is shown by Yannick Paquette. It's sad to say that he won't be on the series for very much longer. That being said, I also don't understand how this is going to wrap up in the next issue since it leaves on a cliffhanger. Unless it ends in the first few pages, it's going to be very difficult to wrap this up since the next issue isn't supposed to be in Argentina. It's supposed to be Batman with Batwoman, per the solicitation. So, I don't really understand what's going on here. And on top of that, we get thrown a curveball at the very end with El Sombrero, who, as stated in the comic was supposed to be dead because it took place in Batman R.I.P. where he died at Arkham Asylum. So who knows what's going on. I can only give this one and a half out of five batterings. Well, anyone can be El Sombrero just by putting on a Mexican wrestler mask and saying, I'm El Sombrero. Who's going to know? Although why somebody would want to you know, have a mantle that stupid is beyond me. I had some of the same problems that Dustin had with, you know, that's great, I'm reading a story that I can't understand because I don't speak Spanish, and if I had that problem and Dustin had that problem, I'm sure that most of the other uh, audience of Batman Incorporated who are just English-speaking had that problem. So I guess that that's great. You know, it, it's like Lost or something, where, you know, like a, a lot of the appeal for Lost for people was like to solve the riddles and to do the research on the Internet. I don't want to do that with a comic. I don't want to have to say, ooh, if I get a Spanish-to-English dictionary, you know, I'll be able to unlock, you know, more assets of the story that I didn't have before. Oh, Grant Morrison, you're taking me on such an amazing journey. But something tells me that even if I knew what was they were saying in Spanish, I'd still have problems understanding the story and keeping up with it. You know, just like the skipping around. And when you do something like showing, you know, those superheroes and that army, you need to have context to that situation, you know, so like that we, so that we know the context of what's going on. Otherwise, it's just a random scene. I mean, I complain about clunky exposition, but, like, some of these scenes suffer from lack of exposition, for crying out loud. I still like, you know, the way that they're doing these cliffhangers, like, you know, tune into the next Batman Incorporated, very, you know, William Dozier, of course, and uh, that's fun to have in a Batman comic, but I have no clue what's going on. I mean, and I hate to do this again in the podcast, but I'm going to have to give this two out of five batterings. All right. <laughs> I've taken Spanish classes in the past, so... From what I can gather, the panels were, like, on page 11, where he's, like, riding the horse and stuff. Basically, it's exposition to explain what El Gacho's secret identity is. His, he's Don Santiago Vargas. He uh, is a, basically a playboy who spends his free time horse riding and horse racing. And he is extravagant, irresponsible, enigmatic, which makes him very, you know, very, a, a big catch for all the ladies. So basically, all the Spanish bits are sort of like the exposition to give, you know, his secret identity. And what I think that was doing was to sort of like make him an analog to Zorro. Because, ah, everyone knows that Batman was partially inspired by Zorro. So there's that little bit of analogy there. So, um, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I have to add to the story besides some more info on El Gacho. The biggest problem I had with this story was the fact that he says, I know Bruce Wayne. Why are you Batman posing as Bruce Wayne? Okay. Batman is Bruce Wayne. El Castro says he knows 
Bruce Wayne. He's Batman before, and Bruce Wayne can't be Batman. But he's staring Bruce Wayne in the face. How can he say he's not Bruce Wayne? And he just he, and he puts on his mask. It's not, it's not like he puts on. It's not like he takes off a, a, a plastic mask or anything. He puts on the Batman cowl, so he knows that has to be Batman, but it can't be Bruce Wayne. What in the what? That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. And I don't know what else is going on with, with the rest of the story either. But I really love the art. I actually really like the tango dance scene because I thought the woman was hot. But this gets in two and a half out of five battle ranks because it makes very little sense. Okay, this sort of comic is the reason why I really started listening to this podcast. Just because I thought, am I just really stupid and just don't understand this? Or is this just not make any sense? And I'm so happy that it's not just me. But equally, I wish I could understand it. There's this, I mean, overall, it's pretty entertaining. And we still we get some of that silly kind of um, you know stuff we got from the first arc with the, the uh, little scorpions which are bombs and things like that which is all quite fun but it's it's frustrating when you have to like just said try and work out what you're reading and this um the beginning i think it was like five pages at the beginning where it's all set in i think like an alternate england or something it said or i don't really understand and i really hope that it's expanded upon and explained but i can't see it happening until like the next grant morrison title but, um, yeah, I, I'm quite interested to see what's going on with this uh, El Sombrero and if it's really him and if it is, why he's alive. But uh, I think with the hopes that it's explained, I'll give it three out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Batman Incorporated number three, two out of five batterings. Let's move into our last issue, which is Batgirl number 19. <coughs> Bien, Batman, un placer verte como siempre. Pero ahora debo irme. Que el hilo dental te ayude. <risa> Detesto ir al dentista. All right, we start off with Stephanie almost falling asleep in her breakfast, which fans of Batgirl will note the repeated theme of uh, waffles in the Brown household. She's having to talk with her mother, which is, you know, the usual trope that we see in superhero comics and movies where it's like, huh, why are you so tired? And then, like, she's like, ha, ha, little does she know that last night I was fighting crime. Let me think about it right now. Via the newspaper, learning that there's been another string of bank robberies where the... Uh, the robber is so fast that he appears and disappears before even the cameras can get a good look at him. Stephanie's mom thinks that it's a magician. So Stephanie goes to the scene of the crime, uh, which is Gotham Dick and Trust, where the police are looking at evidence, and she talks to Nick Gage, and, you know, she's a little more flirtatious than usual, which is kind of uncomfortable, and she talks to him about, you know, the crime scene, and he's being a little shady, and she's like, oh, what's eating you? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. And listening in outside with his little, uh, what is it, mic gun, you follow those things, with his little mic gun is the Grey Ghost, who's still stalking Batgirl. We then get a scene with Stephanie and Barbara, which is basically for all those who decided not to read Birds of Prey, giving you a little update, although giving you some details that Death of Oracle didn't. You know, where Stephanie's like, I can't believe you quit. Oh, well, actually, I'm building a new internet for Bruce. And then, I like this line, Stephanie says, I don't even know what that means. And then Barbara says, exactly. Why do you think it's taking me so long? 
which is just funny to announce, like, we're saying, Barbara, I need you to build me a new internet. That is all. <laughs> like, trying to figure out, like, how the heck she's going to do that. And then Stephanie saying, by the way, you know, I think Wendy's kind of getting mad again. You should talk to her. We get some pages of Stephanie falling asleep in class, and I don't know if this is supposed to mean anything or not, but her classmate is, like, doing something on the computer, and it's not schoolwork, and she's like, oh, what's that? And he's like, nothing. And then it's not followed up on, so maybe that's something for the future. And then we get a scene between Barbara and Wendy, which is straight from, like, the early issues of the series, which I thought we were done with this, but apparently it's like, Wendy, you can't let being paralyzed affect your, you know, uh, self-esteem and being a hero. And she's like, well, I don't want to be a hero. So, yeah, we're doing this again. Later that, later that night, the Grey Ghost is looking for Batgirl when she goes up behind him, gets the jump on him, and says, yeah, actually, I've known you've been trailing me for a while, and this has to stop. You're not good at this stuff. But then Proxy contacts Batgirl to say, okay, uh, looks like the, this, this guy who's robbing these banks, he's about to hit this bank right here. But the Grey Ghost, overhearing that via his listening stuff, gets to the bank actually before Batgirl does. I don't know how he got there so fast, but whatever. And gets his butt handed to him by this guy who looks kind of like a slide from a Marvel Comics. And he has, like, similar powers. He has, like, a frictionless suit. And we saw him at the end of one of the other arcs. And he calls himself Slipstream. And basically, like, yeah, he, he can be really fast because his suit doesn't have friction. So it's hard for Batgirl to even get a hit on him and stuff. So as a result, this guy gets away. And the Grey Ghost is a nuisance as usual. But before he gets away, he is about to, you know, put the finishing touches on the heroes when he, his suit is overrided by his mysterious employer who says, no, not yet. So Batgirl goes into the new uh, firewall headquarters of Proxy and sees that it's been completely redecorated, including, like, a purple Batgirl car, which you only see it in one panel. It looks kind of like... The Mystery Inc. van. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of like if Barbie, if, like, if, if during, like, Batman Begins, they would, like, have, you know, a Barbie Batmobile Batman Begins set or something, like how that would look. <laughs> It's like a miniature version of that, but for a girl. But, you know, we don't get a lot of exposition about the new tech, and Wendy just basically says, you know, yeah, Bruce Wayne upgraded this stuff. How are we going to slot, stop, slipstream? Are you ready for round two? And Stephanie says, oh, hell yes. And that's the end of part one. Batgirl number 19. This issue was, it it continued the slipstream story, which kind of took a break in February for the Clarion the Witch Boy story. And also the issue before that with the Damien and Batgirl team-up. So I have two complaints about this issue. The first one is, I really didn't appreciate the two months we had off with the Reaper and the Slipstream story. It really seemed like that story lost a lot of momentum by having those two issues that had little to do with the story that was taking place in Batgirl. I think that affected it a little bit because I think that story lost momentum by having two months off. And now we're trying to refresh our memories with what happened in the previous story arc before the last two issues. And, you know, the editor did a little bit of a good job by throwing in, hey, you can check out this in Batgirl number 15. Kind of a reminder that this these events happened before, so, you know, it didn't happen recently. And there's not a huge reason of why they needed to take those two months off other than they wanted to do that clear on the Witch Boy story for February to line up with Valentine's Day. With that being said, the issue was solicited as Dustin Wen doing the art. It was also said on the cover of the issue that Dustin Wen did the art, but when you turn to the first page, Uh-oh. 
It has Ramon Box doing art. Your favorite artist. Now, I love Dustin Wenzel. I will, you'll never hear me say, well, most of the, you'll probably never hear me say a bad thing about Dustin Wen's art. But I will have something bad to say about Dustin Wen. If he's solicited to do art, <laughs> he is labeled on the cover as doing the art, but then the only art that he does is the actual cover. That's going to be a big problem for me because then we're turning into the Paul Dini scenario where Paul Dini solicited to do stuff, but then he's not on the book. Now, looking ahead at things coming up in the future, Dustin Wen was announced to be the Batgirl artist. But looking ahead, he is solicited to do the art on issue 20 and 21. But my question is, if he's solicited to do the art, are we really going to expect his art, or are we going to expect somebody else, like Ramon Box? Because, honestly, I'm going to pick up the book whether or not it's Dustin Wen or not. But it, it's kind of a refreshing to get art by somebody you are expecting to get art from. And definitely not a completely different artist such as Ramon Box, who's not one of my favorite artists. So with that being said, that that's a huge disappointment. Now, I don't think Ramon Box actually did a bad job in the issue. There was obviously some problems. I'm not going to go through them. But there was a couple problems that, that could have been resolved. But I'm more disappointed that Dustin Wen was solicited to do the art and he didn't end up doing the art. I really hope that because DC's having him do so many covers throughout the entire DC universe, specifically within the Batman universe with variant covers and things coming up in the future, that he doesn't get pulled too far thin where he can't maintain interior work in the books. Because that's going to be a huge problem for me. I think he really exceeds when he's doing interior art. His covers are amazing as well, but really there's not very many people out there that are known only for their cover work. So, the story overall was good. It was nice to see that uh, Firewall has been upgraded and, and uh, Stephanie has a vehicle, although it looks like a purple Mini Coupe. And yeah. that, to me, does not say this is a superhero vehicle. It kind of reminds me of the the vehicle that Peter Parker had over in uh, the Marvel The universe. spider buggy? Yeah, the spider buggy that uh, was completely ridiculous as well. But, um... Hopefully, because the cover of Batgirl number 20 shows the car uh, spinning out of control and flipping over, the car won't be around very long, and we'll see a, maybe a new vehicle of some sorts, because it's quite ugly. So with that being said, I'm going to give Batgirl number 19 three out of five batterings. Yeah, until Dustin mentioned uh, that Dustin Wen was not doing the art, I totally thought it was him, based on the solicitations and... You know, I re- I saw his name on the cover, but I pretty much, you know, if his name's on the cover, I didn't really, you know, pay much attention to the credits. And I was thinking, wow, his art has really evolved. This doesn't even look like Dustin Wen. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> he just said this five minutes ago. No, it's like, it's like, I, I thought he was joking. That's a really simple editorial thing. Just, like, go to the cover before it goes to press, delete Dustin Wen, and put, like, somebody else on there before this thing is sent to print. I'm sure that it's not that difficult to, like, just change that. So that's kind of an editorial mishap that, you know, takes away a point for me. The the windy stuff I'm not liking, and it's been a while. And, you know, like Dustin said, you know, we kind of took a break from some of the ongoing plots for two issues. So maybe I forgot something, but it's like they're referencing a fight that Wendy and Barbara had that I'm pretty sure that they didn't have. 
So, like, I, I feel like I've missed an issue, truth be told. I do like how they tried to catch the readers up, you know, for those who decide not to read the awful Birds of Prey myth, you know, with that page between Stephanie and Barbara. But you know, I really didn't like the windy scene based on, you know, all that stuff. And, and it makes the death of Oracle thing more complicated because Wendy knows that Barbara's alive, but she's not supposed to know that Oracle's alive, but she knows that Barbara's Oracle. How, how does that even work? Because, like, because Stephanie and Barbara were even saying, well, you know, Wendy can't know that Oracle is still in operation. So this whole thing isn't even consistent from writer to writer already. You know, like, we're talking about, you know, how are the other writers going to handle it? Well, you know, it's first month out the gate, and we already have this. Now, Ramon Bach, his art was good. It actually reminded me of some of the old Lee Garbit issues, probably because of the coloring, but I didn't like the way Nick Gage was drawn. It, it, it didn't look like him at all. And that, like, that panel where Batgirl comes up behind the gray ghost, the way she's drawn, it's very, I can't describe it, but it's, it just doesn't work for me. There was some asides there, like the whole thing with the kid in the class who's looking at the computer. What is that? Oh, nothing. Well, let's go back to sleep in class. Okay. What was that? Well, are we supposed to believe that, has, that that has any significance? Like, I almost feel like it's a Grant Morrison thing or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm still enjoying this book. I like what Brian's doing with Batgirl, but this issue hit a lot of snags, so I can't really give it anything more than three out of five battering. Uh, I think this is the least offensive issue <laughs> in the uh, well, one of the more least offensive issues in the in the run tonight. <laughs> I like Ramon Box art unabashedly. I don't know what the problem is. I thought it was fine here. I think he'd be good as a regular ongoing artist. Do I prefer him over Dustin Wynn? Um, well, on this title, maybe. I mean, I, th- I think it's a lot easier to put with Batgirl than Dustin Wynn would be. But like Josh, Josh said, already with the Death of Oracle thing, this stupid plot line, it's not making any sense because as far as the world is concerned, Oracle is dead. Okay, but, you know, the people who you know know who Oracle is are not making any bones about you running around. I think something will be brought up with the computer thing because Brian K. Miller has, he said previous times that he has a plan for the year, and I don't think that's just a reduces panel. I'm going to give him the credit, the benefit of the doubt. Um, Could you even tell what was on that computer? It looks schematics for something. It lo- well, yeah, like they should have made it more clear so that we would know it was something ominous. It will probably be brought up again, I think. I'm tired of Wendy being Mr. Angsty Girl, and if she's not going to change really soon, she should either, you know, get some better character development or go the way of Marvin. This issue was decent. You know, we have Firewall and all this, you know, cool hip lingo technology, which no one cares about. And we have this this funky Mini Cooper that we're going to give uh, Stephanie, which I think she will have for a long time since we read it in the interview. But um, I'm liking the art, and the story was decent, so I'll give this three out of five batarangs. I like the issue. The art was fine, although I do miss Dustin Duran. He's my, uh, one of my favorite Batman artists. So it's um, a shame, especially since he was solicited, that he uh, wasn't on there. I like the inclusion of the Grey Ghost. I think it's quite fun to see. And I really liked um, when Stephanie confronted him on the rooftops for the Red Sky. It was a real callback to the animated series, which I liked. And um, I read this before, Birds of Prey, which uh, got me a bit confused. And it kind of spoiled the ending, although I kind of reading Birds of Prey spoils itself. So... That wasn't too bad. But, um, yeah, I, I thought, overall, I really enjoyed the issue. It was a bit odd coming, jumping back into this continuity. But 
I think I'm not sure if it has something to do with the um, having to wait until this death of all Clark finished because of the mention of it in this issue. So I'm wondering if that gap was necessary. But um, if not, then I, I definitely I don't see why it was there, especially two months because they didn't need the Damien issue in there, or even if it was quite fun. But um, I'll give this a three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so Batgirl number 19 gets three out of five batterings. That wraps up all of our comic reviews. Let's do over Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Hi there, and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm looking at a book called Robin, a Hero Reborn. This book was written by Alan Grant, a well-known writer who's worked on The Last Arkham, Shadow of the Bat series, Detective, and The Anarchy series. And it's also co-written by Chuck Dixon, who went on to write the long-running Robin series and the Nightwing series. I've reviewed Robin Year One, Nightwing Year One, and Batgirl Year One. Uh, Chuck Dixon, writers of all of those, he clearly likes the Year Ones. And the art here is provided by Norm Brayfogle and Tom Lyle. This book collects Batman issues 455 through to 457 and the first ever five-part Robin miniseries. And this book was published in 1998. So here we're going to find out, is Tim ready to take that next step and become the third Robin? Let's see what happens. So it all starts off with the fallout of Tim's mother's murder. Of course, we saw that in the last story involving Tim. Tim attends his mother's funeral and wants to channel his rage into the role of Robin. But Tim is ordered to stay home while Batman is out on the streets. Bruce can see the same rage in Tim that he saw in Jason, and he thinks this is far too dangerous and Tim needs to change. This is in order for him to become fully prepared before he gets on to roam the streets someday as Robin. Batman is determined not to make the same mistake with Tim he made with Jason Todd. We also get to see that Vicky Vale is investigating a string of murders who, where the murderer has been a normal citizen who has suddenly gone on a murderous rampage. Vicky Vale is kidnapped and Tim eventually deduces that the murder sprees are caused by fear. More specifically, fear gas, which must of course mean the Scarecrow. Tim leaves the Batcave, even though Bruce ordered him not to, and goes to help Batman, who's unaware of a, a trap. Ba- Batman is captured, and Scarecrow plans his death. Tim arrives in his normal gear, wearing a mask, and overcomes the fear toxin to defeat the Scarecrow. Batman thanks him and tells him he made the right choice. He is the new Robin. Bruce gives him a new Robin suit, and Tim tries it on. After having proven his spirit is good enough, the Robin miniseries starts with Tim getting sent to Paris in order to learn more and perfect his fighting skills from the Rahul Lama, an ancient fighting master. There he gets involved in a fight with a gang, which later turns out to be more than the average street gang. They're led by a woman called Lynx. 
but instead they're an organisation led in turn by a madman called the King Snake. Together with allies he meets along the way, including Henri Ducard and Lady Shiva, he goes out to see if he can make a difference. We also get to see him get trained by Lady Shiva, who Tim feels is faster and quicker than even Batman. And Tim decides to pick out his new weapon, a simple staff, non-lethal weapon. And so his trip to Paris turns into a worldwide pursuit in which he learns a lot from the others and from himself. Batman greets him on his return and seems to think that Tim Drake is ready. We finally have our Tim Drake Robin. Holy rusted metal, Batman! Huh? You're grown, it's all metal, it's full of holes, you know? Holy! Oh. Now, in review, I'm starting to really like Tim Drake as Robin because he does exactly what Chuck Dixon wants him to do, and that's to compliment Batman. He's not reckless and brash like Jason. He's restraining that sort of emotion. And if anything, he lacks confidence. However, he is arguably the best detective of the three Robins and clearly a very bright guy. His determination is very impressive as a character. Uh, when he's in training, you can tell at points he feels quite helpless, but he doesn't give in really showing his heroic qualities there. And Chuck Dixon, as with most of the Year One stories, seems to be very good at these coming-of-age tales of our heroes. Um, Tim's not arrogant to believe that he's destined to be the great Robin. He's humble, he realises the danger, he has fear, but he bravely strides forward to face that fear. And he embodies a lot of struggles and inadequacy. That that That's why I think he's quite uh, an interesting character at the moment. And I think he is quite a popular one as a result of it. Uh, clearly with uh, Jason, patience and diligence were lessons that he didn't learn. Tim seems to have that. He's been patient to towards becoming the next Robin. Um, there was a dream sequence involving uh, Jason and Dick Grayson as Robin, which kind of Tim's nightmare, which I thought was pretty creepy and quite effective. Uh, we're again seeing parallels and comparing Tim with Jason. I, I wonder how long it'll be before Tim moves beyond that. Uh, I think it's great, but it's getting a little bit tired now. I thought Scarecrow was a good choice of villain, uh, linking in with Tim's fear of failing as Robin. Uh, as with the Batman Begins film, Scarecrow was involved with Batman, Batman causing fear in other criminals. This time it's more about Tim's fear in failing Bruce Wayne. Um, so I thought Scarecrow was a suitable villain. Uh, one thing that was a little bit odd was Tim was not concerned at all about revealing his identity in Paris, um, which I thought was a bit risky. But I thought it was a good adventure around Europe and the world. Uh, the new characters we got to meet were very interesting, some quite significant ones like Lady Shiva, Henri Ducard, uh, Lynx, King Snakes, quite significant characters as, uh, as we move along. I'm sure we'll see them again. Uh, the, the villain decided he wanted to release the plague around the world. Uh, the only problem with that is, didn't we, don't we have a cure for that? Um, I didn't think that was much of a threat. And uh, I also thought Lady Shiva was very intriguing. We get to see uh, Robin pick his weapon, for instance, and Shiva criticised him for being non-lethal. She's clearly a very dangerous woman. And I hope to see more of Lady Shiva in the future. So, all in all, I thought it was a very interesting story for for a new Robin. Really great way of getting to know Tim Drake in depth. Very little uh, Bruce Wayne involved. And um, I really liked it. So I'll be giving it four and a half out of five Batarangs.
next time we're taking a departure from the developments within the Batman family and revisiting an old enemy. And that would be Two-Face, in a story called Two-Face, Crime and Punishment. This is a one-off book that will take an in-depth look at Harvey Dent's character. So look forward to a good bit of old Two-Face next time. I've been Nick, this has been Bat Books for Beginners, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Uh, let's get into Bat Book Delays. Joe, what do we've got for delays over the past two weeks? Well, I suppose the main one was the delay of Batwoman. Both issues one and two have been deleted from the solicitations and uh, all orders have been cancelled. So um, we did eventually get a, a um, comment from J.H. Williams on his blog saying again that it wasn't his fault. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no explanation was given. It was basically him saying DC had said cancel this and he wasn't allowed to go into it any further. So I'm a little bit suspicious, but um, I, th- I suppose you have to believe him. Although there was no comment on the source or anything like that. And uh, the other thing which I, I forgot to post on the website, but I did men- or mention it already, was the... Um, I think the mistake in Asriel, where it seems again issues Batman 708 and 709 confused. The end of Asriel number 18, which we talked about earlier, we were referencing the story would be continuing in Batman 708, but 708 actually comes out this week, the week that this this podcast is posting, and it's definitely not an Asriel story. They meant to be 709, so that was an editorial mistake on their part. So that is Bat Book Delays. Not a whole lot of delays, but uh, definitely the Batwoman thing is a big thing since it's already been delayed once. All right, so let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We'll be covering Batman number 708, Knight and Squire number 6, Red Robin number 21, Batman Incorporated number 4, Batman Streets of Gotham number 21, Batman the Dark Knight number 2, and Superman Batman number 82. That's what we'll be covering on the next episode. This podcast is posting up the week of C2E2, and if you are attending C2E2, drop us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. I myself will be attending on behalf of thebatmanuniverse.net to get all the Batman news and to score some interviews with some of the comic creators. Uh, We've made it a pretty good effort to try to get more interviews than we had last year, which will be very easy since we had zero interviews last year except for what we did at San Diego, but uh, we're committed to trying to get a ton more comic creator interviews this year, and in addition to not only the video ones that we got that we'll be getting at the conventions, but also setting up some, some other longer ones for the interview feed that we will be having on the site as well. That way we can also include questions that you guys would like to be asked. So keep listening. We'll make sure that uh, we tell you about any of the interviews that are coming up and give you a good notice so that way you can get your questions submitted so that we make sure we can get those questions asked to the creators when we do them. One interview that we do have set up 
for uh, the very near future that I will let everybody know about is with Chris Cross, the artist on the current Superman Batman arc that's running for five issues. So that interview will be done uh, sometime in the beginning of April. So if you have a question for Chris Cross, he's also worked on a couple of other Batman projects, including he worked on one of the one-shots for Batman Battle for the Cowl and some other things. You can check out his uh, website to see more of what he's worked on. But you can send us any questions you might have for him, and we'll make sure to get those asked as well. With that being said, that is everything for this episode. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can, of course, go to the website for daily news. You can listen to our many other podcasts. You can join the forums, and you can leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always appreciated. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. This is Don. This is Joe. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Thank you, and good night. Good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bug bite. Bet the bed bugs bet. Ugh. Yeah. Don't you know anything about science? <laughs> Don't you know anything about medical science? Exactly. But it's Batman science. It doesn't have to make sense. There we go. <laughs> and since that series has been canceled, we don't need to see things like that at all. Oh, what? Batman and Superman still out there. <laughs> Creeped out by the art in the Batman comic, kind of like with uh the what happened that issue of Detective Comics with uh. Scott Snyder, Gordon, and his son. Yeah, well, it's not, it's not, yeah, that's right. Snyder did draw it. It's, no, Snyder uh, did not draw it. <laughs> I j- oh, jock. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, it was Jock the, and uh, some other guy. Francisco Francavello. The, the, the most he- the most heavily edited review recap of all. <laughs> they say that they locked him in, but a lot of them have been taken out. We don't know exactly what happened after that because we then cut to. Okay, who's breathing? Who is that? Is that me? Yeah. Sorry. All right. Stop breathing, Donovan. You must suffocate.